We're going to start a new book today. We're going to start a new book today. There you go. I knew you were excited. Um, we're going to go to the book of Philippians. And um, what I want to do is I want to bring context to this book as we dive into it. Uh, the context of why this was written and when it was written is incredibly important. What I've done all week is just really dig into Paul's heart when he wrote this book. And so much more came out than, I, than I, I've read it before. But so much more came out when you place yourself in his shoes and exactly what was going on. So in order to bring us proper context to the book and keep it in its context, I'm going to ask you to turn to Acts chapter 16 because Philippians is birthed out of this text that we're about to read in Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16, let me share with you what's going on. Um, Paul is on his missionary journey. Paul is planting churches. In, in fact, it's quite remarkable. It, there's great news. If you're in here today and you're wondering, what can God do with my life? Can God use somebody like me? I want you to listen to something because Paul um, was not known as Paul first. He was known as Saul. Saul was a member of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was like the Harvard of theology during this time. They were incredibly intelligent. He had the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, memorized. First five books of the Bible. I can't memorize a grocery list that my wife sends me. He had the entire five books of the Torah memorized. A brilliant, brilliant man who was climbing the ladder in the Sanhedrin. He was climbing the ladder, and what he began to see was that Christians began this movement that were pushing against his teachings. So he felt threatened by Christians. So what he began to do is began to literally murder Christians for preaching the gospel, beheading Christians. In fact, when God changed his life miraculously, he was on the, on the road to Damascus to kill more Christians. He met Jesus, and then when he met Jesus, his life was transformed. And if you ever wonder, can God do something with my life? Can God use someone like me? Here is this murder who is on the way to kill more Christians who fully surrendered and said, here I am. Here, here I am. Here's my sin. Here's my brokenness. What can you do with me? Here's what happened next. God infused this fire in him. He wanted everybody. He wanted all the broken people. He wanted everybody to know about Jesus. So he began to go places where the name of Jesus wasn't heard. He began to plant churches. In fact, here's how he planted churches. He would go into a city. He would go into the Jewish synagogue. He would get up in the synagogue. He would teach. He would lead people to Christ. He would pull those people out of the synagogue, and they would start a church. So he did this over and over and over. So here he is on his second missionary journey, Paul, Silas, Barnabas, Paul and his posse, and they're saying, let's go share Jesus and see people's lives transformed. He is real. Jesus is real and he changes lives. Jesus is real and he transforms people. Jesus is real and he uses people. And so he's sitting here preaching this like crazy. And here's what happens in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 16, verse 7. Listen to this. Paul is preaching the gospel, and it says this. And when they had come up to Mycenae, they attempted to go into Bithynia. But listen to this. But the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. 
I want to pause here in verse 7 very quickly because here he is motivated with this pure passion and desire to tell about Jesus. He is figuring out where can he plant his next church and he wants to plant it in this certain area. And some reason the door kept closing. And I wonder if he tried to push through these doors that kept closing. Nonetheless, the scripture says that the reason why these doors kept closing is because the spirit of Jesus did not allow him to go into these doors. So here's what he does next. He, he keeps trying, the doors keep closing, and it says that Jesus closed the doors. We always talk about Jesus opening doors, but praise God, Jesus closes doors too. So Jesus closed the doors, and here's what happens next in verse eight. So passing by Mycia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. So here he is. He is trying to go here. The doors close. He's wondering, what is going on, God? Why does the door keep closing? This guy is willing. He is hungry. He is willing to submit to God, whatever God wants him to do. And look at what God does next. God speaks to him in a vision. Here's the incredible thing. You ask, why was Paul used in such a mighty way? Why did God speak to him in the supernatural way? Why did God do supernatural things before him and through him? Here's is, is what I fully believe about Paul. Paul put his yes on the table to God before God ever asked the question. Paul lived in such a way where he says, I am yours, I will do whatever you want me to do. God speaks to the soul that is fully surrendered. If you want God to speak, don't put God on certain restrictions and guidelines and boundaries. God, I will serve you as long as you keep me in this city and in this state. God, I will serve you as long as you give me a raise. God, I will serve you as long as you give me what I want. Here, here's the danger in Christianity today. We serve God as if he is an enhancer to our benefit package. God, I will say yes to you if it works out the way I always thought it was supposed to work out. But if you want me to say yes and not know what's coming after that, I ain't doing that. I got to know everything is good before I say yes, God. That's not the way Paul operated. Paul said, yes, I don't know what you're going to ask. The answer is yes, because I know you're real and I know you can do mighty things. So imagine, imagine your life Imagine Paul's life, an ex-murderer saying, look, I've tried this my way. It doesn't work. What do you want? What do you want me to do? I'll do whatever you want me to do. So here's what happens. God speaks to him in a supernatural way. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, watch this word, circle this word. This is an anomaly today in our culture. Paul responded immediately. When God spoke, he responded. When God spoke, he responded. He didn't delay his obedience. Delayed obedience is disobedience. When God spoke, he responded. When God spoke, he responded. So here it is, God spoke, he responded. I wonder if God spoke because he knew he would respond. I wonder today if God spoke to you, if he knew or not, whether you'd even respond. So here he is, he, he responds. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel. So here's what happens. Listen, he goes, God has spoken. I am going, God. God had said, has said yes. 
The safest place to be is in the will of God. When he says yes, he goes, he begins preaching. There, there are no synagogues. Remember, he would go into the synagogue, preach, and start a church out of there. In Philippi, there were no synagogues. So he went in and started doing street evangelism. He just started preaching to people who would listen. He came up to a group of Jewish women. He started preaching. A lady by the name of Lydia gets saved. Lydia then um, brings them to her household. The entire household gets saved. Lydia says, what you are preaching is real. I want to support you in your missionary journey. She becomes a big supporter for Paul in his missionary journey. They continue to go preaching. They're still beginning to preach the gospel. At this point, when they're preaching the gospel, they see somebody out in the crowd every time he's preaching who's just hollering crazy stuff. Like, can you imagine in this room today, as I'm preaching, one of you start hollering stuff at me? It's happened before in this church, by the way. So it wouldn't be too much of an anomaly, but she starts yelling. And he recognizes this woman is demon-possessed. So he goes and he shares this gospel with this possessed woman. She gives her life to Christ and is radically transformed. Here's why this was a threat to to the culture. Because this woman was like a psychic. She was like a fortune teller. Uh, By the way, demonic spirits are real and you can tap into them. And so this woman was a, like a psychic fortune teller, and they would pay her money, and she was demon-possessed, and they'd, they'd go to her and say, tell me my future. Tell me what the Spirit is saying. And she would speak from a demonic place. So she was speaking through a demonic spirit in her. So they would pay her to get a message from this demonic spirit. She would take the money, and then she would give it to her boss. She'd take the money, give it to her boss. This was a transactional relationship, and she was this fortune teller. She gets saved, guess what happens? She no longer is a fortune teller. Her boss stops getting money. Her boss stops getting money, so he gets angry with Paul. Why did you share the gospel with her? What they do to Paul next is they beat him. They beat Paul, and they throw him in the jail, he and and Silas. You know what Paul does when he's being faithful to God, and he's saying, God, I try to go this way. You made me go this way. Now life stinks. You ever been at a place where you've been uber faithful and felt like things weren't going your way? You ever been there? You're just so confused. I don't know about you, but I feel like a huge pity party. I'm just, I've been so faithful. How dare you do this, God? Life's supposed to be easy. My kids don't listen. My wife, my wife perfect. And, and I'm angry and I'm upset because what God exposes when things don't go my way is a heart of entitlement. I think that my faithfulness buys me something from God. I think that my faithfulness forces his hand to give me what I want. And when it doesn't happen, he exposes my entitlement and I throw a self-pity party and I'm like sad, I get in the car and I just, I wanna be sad and I'm listening to boys to men, you know, I'm just like <laughs> to the end of the road and I don't know why, I'm like, I got a wife, I don't need nobody, why am I so sad right? You know, it's just like, you listen to, love. it's just, you're sad, you don't know why you're sad and you're sad and you're just, you're beating yourself up and it's crazy because Paul doesn't do that. You know what Paul does? You know what the scripture says Paul does? And if you look up in verse 25, it says that while he's in the prison cell, falsely accused and falsely imprisoned, experiencing deep injustice. You know what it says that he does? It says that he begins praying and singing hymns to God. 
Listen to what God was doing in this situation. God was helping Paul understand, as he does us, that he is not a circumstantial God. That we think God deserves our praise when circumstances go our way. And God, the best thing he can do for Paul and the best thing he can do for you is that in spite of your circumstances, he deserves your praise. That in spite of what you're getting what you want or you're not getting what you want, that he deserves to be worshiped and he deserves to be prayed. Praise. And so here's what Paul's doing. Paul is saying things aren't going the way I want them to go. My circumstances don't look like I want them to go. But here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pray and I am going to sing to God because he is still God and he is still on the throne. And I want you to see what happens. It says that the prisoners were listening to him and suddenly there was a great earthquake. This is absolutely crazy. It's like God breaks them to where nothing else is working. All they can do is praise. All they can do is sing. Now God says, now you get it. Watch me do something supernatural. Because if I were to let you do something on your own, you would think that you're the one who had something to do with it. So what I will do is strip you of all resources. I will strip you of all strength. I will strip you of everything that you think you need in order to succeed. And I will break you and I will get you to this point of emptiness to where all you do is praise. And then when I come on the scene, everyone knows it was me who came on the scene he breaks he breaks the idolatry of circumstances that if life is good that I must be good with God and if life is bad well then I must be bad with God there's a danger in prosperity theology there's a great danger in prosperity theology because the enemy will have a filled day with you if you think that your faithfulness leads you to a life of ease That is not the gospel. Because all we see in this text is that every time somebody is faithful, there is hardship and there is persecution. If someone told you that tithing and faithfulness will lead you to a life of promise and blessings, you were lied to. God will bless you and God is good. I'm not saying he is not, but he is not our Santa Claus. He is worthy to be praised. He is God. He is the creator. And according to scripture, we deserve death and death alone. And so, and so Paul here is sitting there praising, and then all of a sudden the jailer gets saved. And so here is the context. Now the church is birth. So Paul plants this church, and I want you to see this, this 30,000-foot view. This is the modern-day Philippi right here. If you were to go today, this is what it looks like. It's a beautiful place, and I'm going to scale down just a little bit more. You will see this place where um, if you go today, This jail cell is still there. There are two cells there. Scholars believe this exact jail cell is where Paul and Peter were prisoned. They believe this is where Paul, right in this space right here, was writing this book. Now, now let's, let's, let's bring it in. He's sitting here. And he is sitting here with this injustice. And he is wondering... God, where are you, Father? He's in this prison cell of pain. He's praying. It's like it's not going further than the ceiling. He has nothing to pass time. He has has no encouragement. I want you to think about this. He cannot jump on his phone and, and kill time by being on TikTok. 
He can't read a book from a pastor that's going to encourage him. He can't go onto YouTube and listen to a bunch of sermons. He can't attend worship service. He can't listen to worship music. And he can't listen to boys to men. This is a tough life. <laughs> it's a tough life. And he's sitting here and God, it's like God strips him of everything. Like he has absolutely nothing but I will tell you, this is probably one of the best things that's ever happened to Paul because there is intimacy that is found in the prison cell of pain. There is this great intimacy that is found in this prison cell of pain. And Paul is sitting here. Do you, scholars say this, that he is writing this book that we're about to get into while he's awaiting trial to be persecuted, be put to death. How would you live? How would you respond in this room today if you were faithful and things weren't going your way? How do you respond? You know what God exposed in that prison cell of pain? He probably exposed all this junk in his heart. Here is jealousy. Here is envy. Here is pride. Here is ego. Here is entitlement. And God began just to kill all of that stuff. He began to kill all of that. And he helped Paul to see where he was so self-sufficient. And he helped Paul to see, to recognize that self-sufficiency is the enemy of intimacy. Like, I'm, I'm telling you, if Paul was here today and we were to say, Paul, would you take this time back? And he'd probably say, no, because of the way I came to know Christ. That God broke me in self such a way that I have no self-sufficiency. I couldn't hear any other voice but his. And then he writes this book. Now, I want you to hear the tone of how he writes this book. If you turn to Philippians chapter 1. He's going to give us four things today. If you're in a valley in this room today, if you're on this prison cell of pain, he's going to give us four things of how this man kept such an attitude of joy. In fact, in this book, he uses the word joy 16 times. You wonder, how did he do this? Here's how he does it. I want you to look at verse 1. We're going to mark this up today. We're going to dig in the Word and see the heart of God and why he used Paul to write this. So verse 1, Paul and Timothy. I'm going to be very clear, very quickly in the text. Paul wrote this. Um, scholars believe that the reason why he includes Timothy is because Timothy was present um, he, from time to time. It's like he was on house arrest. So while Paul was in the prison cell, they would allow him to have friends come in and different gifts to come in for him. Philippi would, this church in Philippi would send gifts to him, but Timothy would come in and they believed they had a joint partnership in this, although Paul did most of the writing. So he says, Paul and Timothy, I want you to see how he introduced himself. He introduced himself as servants. In the Greek, it's doulos, because it's plural. It's so here, here's what he's saying. This word is very important as that he uses this term, servants. He comes from this place of humility. I want you to understand that this word here, your text may say bondservant. It, this word was used when somebody was totally surrendered to their master, when somebody was totally surrendered to the, to the person uh, that would give them different commands, somebody who would tell them what to do. So Paul approached his writing by saying this, I am a bond servant of Jesus Christ. When people would have heard this, they would have heard that Paul does whatever God tells him to do. He is tightly knit with Jesus. Now, why is this important that he uses this word bondservant? Here's why this is important. Because Paul, um, he could have said, hey, I'm Paul, the guy who memorized the entire Torah. He could have used his titles to give him credibility. 
Hey, I'm Paul, the guy who's planted 60,000 churches. Hey, I'm Paul, the one all of you want to hang out with. Hey, I'm Paul. He could have used his titles, and he didn't use his titles because he understood that his earthly titles did not give him heavenly peace. He understood in this situation, his earthly titles could not give him the strength and peace that he needed when he was in this prison cell of pain. These titles would not rescue him in the midst of his valleys. These titles would not comfort him. These titles would not protect him. These titles would not provide for him. The only title he had comfort in, he didn't say, I'm Paul, CEO. I'm Dr. Noe Garcia, thanks for asking. I'm Paul, president. I'm Paul. He said no, he could have. He could have got clout. He could have got credibility. He could have got more people oohing and on over him. He, but he has recognized that this prison cell of pain has broken me, and I am nothing but a servant of Jesus Christ. God is not impressed with my titles. I am a servant. He understood that when he put himself in the proper position, I am a servant, that there was a strength that he received recognizing I am your servant. I am your servant. What do you want from me? I gave my strength from you. What do you want from me? Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints, who is he writing to? The body of Christ, the church in Christ Jesus, who are in Philippi with the overseers. So he writes to the body of church, as well as the overseers, the spiritual leaders in the church, and deacons, this word means that they are servants in the church. Grace to you and peace from our God, Father, and Lord Jesus Christ. This is Paul, typically, typical Paul introduction to his letters. He always will say grace and peace, something to that manner, and then he gets straight into the topic. So when you see Paul, he's writing from the prison. He is not going to have self-pity. He is not going to complain. But one thing that he does to keep this attitude of joy is that he writes from a place of humility. And so I would tell you today, if you are in this brokenness or in this valley, it's a great thing to have a stature of humility. And here is why, because in this moment when God breaks us, you recognize that God often protects us from ourselves. Like, let, me, let me just tell you what God's going to do to you, and it's not going to be fun. He is going to protect you from you. He's going to protect you from you. I have four kids. All I do is protect them from themselves. And God is going to protect you from you. And if that means he allows you to experience this prison cell of pain like he did with Paul, you won't see it now. I talk to so many people, and I've said this phrase, and you've probably heard this phrase when you talk to people, and they're telling you about a time in their life that was absolutely horrible. And then they say this, but I wouldn't change it. You ever heard that phrase? But I wouldn't change it. Because they look back and recognize, man, something happened to me in the midst of that heartbrokenness. Something happened to me. I grew, and I met God differently. Something happened to me. I didn't like it. But when you're in it, what do you want to do? Get me out as quick as you can. Get me out. Here's the dangerous part. If God is going to protect you from you, and you think changing a location will ease up the pain, 
God will follow you. That's what stinks. I love God, but sometimes it's not fair. He's got all the power, huh? And he will follow you, and if there's a work he's trying to do in you, he will continue that work until it's complete. And so, and so Paul is saying, look, um, I am a servant, and I, I, I'm glad he broke me, and I wouldn't change it. And then he says this, have a heart of gratitude. Be thankful. Be thankful. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the day until now. Let me, let me break down these verses very quickly. Here's what Paul is saying. is Look, life was unbelievably hard. But man, I'm grateful because people's lives have been transformed. People's lives have been changed. God has moved. And I'm grateful that God left a thorn in my side. And you know what that thorn was like. And you experienced that thorn. And I will tell you in this room today that God will allow you to have a thorn in your side so that he can begin to do a mighty, mighty work. I remember um, there were times where I would come before God and I would pray, God, take away my battle with anxiety. I take away my battle with depression. And I'm being vulnerable with you, and here's what I would pray. Like, I would be a better father, God. God, I promise I would be a better father if I wasn't wrestling with this. God, take it away. God, God, I would be a better husband. I'd be a better pastor. I'd be a better friend. Take it away. And then there's a temptation. Listen, you have walked through this temptation where you're praying over and over and over, and it seems like he is not listening and he is not moving, and you get to the place where you probably ask the question, well, then why even pray if he's not going to move? You ever been there? Why pray if you're not going to move? And I wonder, I wonder if God is telling you and telling me, because here's the thing, if I take away the thorn in your side, then I take away your dependence on me. And if I take away my dependence, if your dependence on me, then you will be tempted to think that you are the one that's doing it. And so I'm going to let you have a thorn in your side to where you're barely crawling, but our relationship's going to be so tight that there won't be enough YouTube sermons that you can listen to, enough podcasts, enough books. There will not be enough stuff that will get this relationship the way I want it to be. So I'm going to leave the thorn in your side so that it will produce an intimacy that only this can produce. There's going to be an intimacy that nobody can steal and nobody can take away from you. But if I, if I take the thorn away, you won't walk closely with me. You'll depend on yourself. You depend on your own skill set. I'm going to leave the thorn there. It's like, gosh, God, what are you talking about? So Paul is saying, I am thankful, my God, in all remembrance of you. Always in every prayer of mine for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership. We went through this stuff together. And it was worth it because we're seeing the gospel advanced. And in verse 6, let's unpack verse 6. This is a very popular verse that can be taken out of its context. And I want to break this down, and I want to break this apart. We'll spend about five to ten minutes on it, and we'll be done. So listen, here's what he says. So he gives them, um, 
how if you're how do you find joy in the prison cell of pain number one be humble I am a servant it's all I am number two be thankful found in verse three I think my God I can be complaining about this injustice I can become bitter I can have a chip on my shoulder I can do all kinds of stuff but I'm going to thank God I'm going to choose to focus my eyes on not what I don't have but on what God has given me You know, I've shared this with you plenty of times, but there, there are some times where you'll, you'll, when you're a pastor, someone asked me the question, uh, a young man, he's actually sitting right there, feels called to ministry, he said, hey, can I ask you a question? Is being a pastor hard? So how much time do you have? You know, 1,300 pastors are quitting every month. Every month, and this isn't a self-pity party. But there are times where I'm like, oh, this is challenging. This, this, is, this is challenging. And there are times where, where you, you want to throw a pity party, and there are times where, but then I go to this. Thank you, God. Thank you that I'm not where I was 20 years ago. Thank you, God. Thank you, God, that you allow me to serve your people. Thank you, God. You start focusing your eyes and having gratitude of what God is doing versus what you don't have. Then he goes to verse six and he tells them to be confident of this. He gives them this confidence. Look at this. And I am sure he's confident of this. What is this? That he, God, who began a good work, that God started this work in you, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. What does this mean? We throw, away the, throw around this verse all the time. Uh, let me break this down for you. Here's what Paul is saying. He understands they're gonna walk through stuff. He understands there's gonna be deep pain. And he says this, I am sure you're going to be discouraged, but I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will, can, will bring it to completion. There's a bookend statement. I want you to take a look very quickly. Paul is starting this bookend statement with he who began a good work in you. This is justification. I want you to see the theological implications he's going to give us. He's going to give us justification, sanctification, glorification in this one verse. Justification. Paul is saying that God began a good work in you. That God began it. He is the initiator of your salvation. That God is the initiator. Ephesians 2 tells us we were dead in our trespasses, therefore we didn't initiate our relationship with God. That God initiated his relationship with us. Justification. So that those who place their faith in Jesus Christ are free from the penalty of eternal death. Free. Jesus did it. We are the recipients of it. Jesus did it. Justification. It means that you are a follower, believer of Jesus Christ. You are covered by the blood. Justification. Then he talks about, this is the beginning. He who began. Justification. He began a work in you. We'll continue to the day of completion. Glorification. This means that we will be free one day from the presence of sin. We're free from the penalty of sin and justification. We'll be free from the presence of sin and glorification. So what we can guarantee is that God has bookend our life. That when you have given your life to Jesus Christ, in that moment, you are justified before God because of what Jesus has done. And you can guarantee that he will continue working in your life until he comes back. Glorification. Until we're in glory with him. Between these two, two theological terms, there's something else that we forget about that happens in our lives. It's called sanctification. It means that, congratulations, you are a child of God, now he begins the work. So when we had our children, our, ch our child is born, born, welcome to the Garcia family, we're going to be on you. 
It's my job to lead you. It's my job to correct you. It's my job to expose you. I'm going to be on you. When you come into the family of God, congratulations, the angels in heaven rejoice. We are excited, death to life. Then God says, welcome to sanctification. Now I'm going to do something in you that you can't do for yourself. You know what he does? You know how God exposes things in our lives? This is what he does. Pretend this book is sanctification in your life, and it's, this is your life here in these pages. God begins to see things in your heart and in my heart, and he begins to expose them. For example, how does God expose jealousy in your life? By putting you in a situation that makes you jealous. He does. And you're burning up, and you don't know what to call it, and you, you don't know what that is, and you don't want to call it jealousy. How, let's be honest. How often have you told someone that you're jealous of them? You do? All right. Well, I, I don't do it often. But how often do we say, I'm jealous of you? How often do we say, I envy you, I cover you, I want what you have? So here's what God does, because he's very kind. He says, I see your life, and you have a lot of entitlement in your heart, and I love you, and it's ugly, so I'm going to put you in situations and circumstances that expose it, and we got to work on it. You got to look more like me. Oof, that was hard. Thank you, God. Yeah, but I ain't done. Because also, you got a lot of pride. You love to post about how great you are. You love you some you. You even like your own post. That's how much you love yourself. You got a lot of work to do. You know what I'm going to do? I love you so much that I don't want your ego to get out of hand. I'm going to break you. No, Lord. Yeah, I'm going to break you. Because I love you. And if I don't correct you now, it'll lead you to some bad places. See, if I don't correct you, I, I can see how one day you might fall into an affair. If, if I don't correct you, I can see one day how you, you'll get addicted to pornography. If I don't correct you, I'll see how you'll ruin all your friendships because you're threatened by everybody who steals your glory. I've got to correct you because I love you. I love you. But God, yeah. it hurts. Yeah. I know. I'm going to let you. I'm, 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 I think you got it now. I think you understand that I am God and you are nothing. Yes, God, I just want you and you alone. I go to church every Sunday. I even tithe. Leave me alone. <laughs> a couple of months go by. Oh, look who found their ego again. <laughs> I got to stay on you. Keep pushing that button in your soul. Oh, you want to read your Bible every single day and only think about the mistakes of others? Oh, you want to not forgive but preach about my forgiveness? Oh. Every time you see the person's face, you won't be able to stand them. And I'm going to remind you that you need to forgive them. You won't even unfriend them, but you won't forgive them. Oh. You think this money's yours? I gave you this money. And I can take it away. Oh, 
You're lonely, so you want to go out there and do your own thing? I'm not going to let anybody come your way because you'll mess it up and you've got to recognize that I'm all you need. You get it? <laughs> and it's like, here's what's going to happen in sanctification. God is going to get in your stuff. He is going to get in your junk and he's not going to leave you alone. And he sees the private sins. There is no private sin. God sees it all. No private sin. The enemy will tell you it's private. Then he'll expose you in public. You know what's crazy? Is in the middle of all of this, if we don't call it what it is, we won't be freed from it. Because here's the crazy thing. You, you could act like this isn't jealousy, like you can't stand that person who's getting attention or taking attention away from you. The reason why we get jealous is because people threaten our kingdom we're trying to build for ourselves. Now here's what's crazy. We, we can, here's what we'll do. We'll see that person that we're jealous of and we'll find flaws in them to justify our feelings of jealousy and we won't call it jealousy. We'll pick on their flaws to justify our jealousy, but we will never call it jealousy. We will never call it pride. We won't call it what it is. Therefore, the seed will stay rooted and it will produce fruit in your life. If you want to be free, call it what it is. Call it what it is. I'm jealous. I'm envious. I'm insecure. Then you're free. I mean, the most embarrassing thing I've ever had to do as a Christian is sit down to my best friends and say, I don't know where this came from, but I'm jealous of you. <laughs> you what? I'm jealous of you. Then I said it in Spanish because they didn't know Spanish. And I thought it was good enough. I confess, God. But I straight up had to say, I, you know what's crazy? Is I confessed that I was jealous of them. Then I wasn't jealous of them anymore. I was like, I'm better than them. What am I jealous of? I'm joking. <laughs> Ain't that good? You're not going to like it. But God is going to get all up in your junk. Because he is faithful. Listen, he who began a good work in you will continue it into the day of completion. We often use that verse and mean a bunch of blessings are coming. Yeah, maybe, but a bunch of sanctification is coming too. And he is going to work on you and he is going to be patient with you. And you're going to be times, listen, there will be times where you are tired of praying. There will be times where you're tired of suffering and you will sin in your suffering. There is a great danger in the midst of our suffering because here's what happens. The enemy begins to tell you that God is not present and this is why you are suffering and God is not listening. What does it matter? Go do your own thing. And if you're not careful, you will be tempted to sin in your suffering. And you will find yourself sinning in your suffering. And then the enemy will say, ha, you sinned. Now God really doesn't want you. And it's a cycle of sin and suffering and you don't know how to escape it. But here is the great news that you are between justification and glorification. So no matter how you're living, he's never going to leave you nor forsake you. All up in here, you can throw fits, you can be upset, you can do whatever you want. He will never leave you nor forsake you. He's not going anywhere. He will walk with you. He's a good God. So Paul is saying, I am confident. I'm telling you, I'm confident whether you're persecuted, whether life is hard, 
He who started it will finish it. Then he says this as we're closing, the band's going to come up. He closes with this, and he tells them to be faithful. The thing the enemy is going to target in your life when you're walking through the valley is your faithfulness. He is going to target your faithfulness. He is going to target your faithfulness. And this is what Paul prays for them. This is what Paul tells them. It is right for me to feel this way about you. He has a heart for this church because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace, meaning we walk through this together. We have walked through brokenness. We have walked through hard times. We have walked through this together. This is both in my imprisonment and in the defense this defense is apologia. In the Greek, it's where we get our words apologetics from. So, which means, listen, watch this, don't miss this, which means that in the midst of their brokenness, they were still proclaiming the gospel. What the enemy wants to do is shut down your life and your voice for Jesus when you're walking through a valley. But he is telling him in here, don't stop preaching the gospel. And he says, and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. What was confirmation of the gospel? Why does he say that? Because here's what happens. While they were preaching, lives were being changed. So what he is saying is, look, we've walked through hard stuff, but we've seen supernatural stuff. We've seen God do something unbelievable. He says, for God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that you lo your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. And so here's what he's telling. I pray that in your brokenness that you learn how to love and to be intimate with Christ. I pray in your brokenness that you yearn and you hunger for the things of Christ. I pray that you understand the intimacy that comes with brokenness and that you can learn how to walk so closely with Jesus. That's the goal in here today. Not more stuff. It's more Jesus. And sometimes he does that through the prison cell of pain in our lives. So we come out differently than what we entered. Then he says this, as he's doing this, look at verse 11. As he's doing this, and as you're walking through sanctification, as he's just going through your life, and he's like, there's all this stuff, and it, it doesn't look like me. It just doesn't resemble my love. You get angry easy, you're insecure, you're, there's pride, there's sin, there's all this stuff. And God begins, to, here's what's great, he begins to get the junk out, then he replaces it. He gets the bitter fruit out of our lives out, and he replaces it with the fruit of righteousness. There's this exchange taking place, but, but the truth is, the exchange has to be on both sides. He's not going to force you, he's going to expose you, but he's not going to force you. And so here, here's my here's my prayer for you this morning just as Paul prayed for them he prayed that they may understand and that their love may may grow and be more and more with knowledge and all discernment but the only way this is going to happen is through their intimacy with Christ and so you may be living in here of this somewhere in this space and you're just saying God I know I'm a Christian I know you're going to come back but life is so heart and I don't see you and I don't hear you and I'm so angry you're not responding to my prayers you're not healing God where are you father where are you he's here 
He is in this space working. He is here. And maybe you're here today and you've never experienced, there is no bookend because you've never experienced the justification being fully forgiven. I don't know where you are, but here's what we're going to do. I'm going to ask the pastors to come through. Maybe there's some stuff in your life that you know you have to confess. Maybe there's some stuff that you know you have to confess and there's sin that you are covering and you need to call it what it is. Call it pride, call it jealousy, call it whatever you want to call it, but call it what it is so you can be set free.